How do I talk to my patients about code status without scaring them? How do I even start those conversations? How do I talk about a patient's wishes at the end of life without making them feel like I'm giving up on them? Join us as we discuss these questions and more on this episode of Medical Time Out. Welcome to Medical Time Out, a podcast where we unpack all things palliative care. I'm Rashmi Kadilkar. And I'm Chin Lin Ching. Last episode, we gave the history of CPR and why the topic of code status bears so much weight in our medical system. We also talked about the logistics of filling out a MOLS form. Today, we're going to wax poetic with you. We're going to share some language and scripts that we use and general approaches to broaching this subject without making your patient feel like you're giving up on them. So Chinlin, in prior episodes, we've talked about the basics of advanced directives, about how to approach goals of care discussions or values-based discussions with our patients. Ideally, these discussions involve a really good information exchange about the medical situation and about the patient's values, hopes, and fears. We usually end up with some decisions about how to proceed with the patient's ongoing care, whether we decide to keep doing what we're doing or whether we decide to make changes or set any limits on care. So how do you pivot to the topic that causes everyone the most anxiety, which is code status? How do you talk about it? How do you bring it up? What's your approach, especially when the topic doesn't follow logically from the rest of the discussion? It's a good question, but let's, let's start by saying that there are a lot of different reasons why someone would require attempts at resuscitation. Uh, multi-organ system failure, shock from heart uh, failure, infections, blood loss, neurologic problems. Because there are so many different reasons why you might require such intensive care, it's important to tailor your discussion about attempts at CPR and intubation to that individual's disease process. Um, a healthy young person who was in a car accident who might need to be on a ventilator until his wounds heal um, is going to uh, look very different um, than someone who needs to be on a ventilator because their lungs are filled with cancer that's untreatable. So it's critical to start with an overview of their medical problems that may increase their risk of death. Um, once there's a mutual understanding, then it feels more natural to transition to talks about, you know, what about if this happens or what would you want if? And that's definitely how I prefer to bring up code status with patients and families. I like to start with the big picture stuff and then gradually narrow the focus down because I find that the answers to those big questions really inform the decisions about, about the details. You know, so for example, if a patient tells me that what's most important to him um, is to be at home so that he can make the most of the time that he has left with his family, you know, then it might make sense that going back and forth to the hospital might not make sense for him. Maybe further chemotherapy isn't right because he might have to come back and forth to get uh, treatment for complications. It might make sense there too that attempts at CPR and intubation wouldn't make sense for him because the aftermath of those decisions, as we've talked about, wouldn't change his overall course. They wouldn't fix his underlying disease. Um, and what happens after CPR and intubation would actually keep him in the hospital and would take him further away from his goal of being at home, um, being away from home and being with his loved ones. Um, it, it doesn't always come up naturally in a discussion. Um, 
If it doesn't, then I will um, ask for permission to talk about it, and then I will make the recommendation for a DNR-DNI order if, if that's what I think is most appropriate. So I want to take pause uh, for a second and reflect on something that you just said. You ask for permission, and then you make a recommendation. For some providers, that is a really hard thing to do, um, make a recommendation. Why is that, Rashmi? So there is an old school of thought that making recommendations is paternalistic in a negative way. But sometimes paternalism isn't a bad thing. It doesn't have to be a bad word in medicine. There are definitely ways that we can make recommendations without making decisions for other people. Um, and in general, patients and families um, are, are appreciative and in fact relieved when we make recommendations about what we think is most appropriate especially if we take the time to them to explain why we're making the recommendation that we're making. Um, and then going back to something we discussed um, previously, the idea of asking permission is that it allows the patient the ability to say, oh, it doesn't matter to me what you think. I don't, I don't need to hear what you think. Um, it is their prerogative. But most often I find our opinions and our recommendations are welcome. You're going to hate me for this, but I'm going to bring you back to our buffet analogy here. Buffet. Um, if you've never seen a type of food before, wouldn't you appreciate someone making recommendations on what to eat and how to eat it? Um, why would we expect people with no medical background to understand the nuances of every medical intervention and the consequences of those uh, interventions in the context of a specific disease process? And yet we do. Every day we do this. Providers will ask something like, do you want us to continue IV fluids? Or do you want us to amputate your foot or continue antibiotics? Those are medical questions seeking medical decisions. Those are questions uh, for rounds when you're rounding with other providers, not for lay people. We're asking the wrong questions. So uh, we should be asking something like this. Um, if you can no longer sustain life by drinking fluids on your own, would you want to be kept alive artificially with IV fluids? Or this is what your life would look like if we amputated your foot. This is what your life would look like if we gave you antibiotics. This is what your life would look like if we didn't pursue any medical or surgical interventions. Based on what you've told me about your values, um, can I share with you my opinion on what seems to fit most within your value system? See the difference there? I do. I like that. And I, I agree with you. Let the values-based conversation lead the discussion, not the other way around. Don't let the checky boxes on that bright pink form lead the discussion. We've mentioned this before. It's our job to be the translator. Our job is to elicit values about what a meaningful life looks like and then translate that into medical in interventions, including attempts at CPR and intubation. We need to help the patient understand what interventions will help you to uphold your values and what interventions will rob you of what's most important to you. We can think of code status discussions in the same way. So knowing that your patient would never want to live in a nursing home and be dependent on other people for their activities of daily living, um, or, or people would never want long-term mechanical ventilation, or people would never want a feeding tube, if we know that, then we know that something like CPR wouldn't make, this, make sense in the context either. Are there other ways, Chinlin, that you bring up CPR with patients? So stop me if you've heard this one before. Mrs. Smith, I talk about this with all of my patients. 
if your heart were to stop, would you want us to do chest compressions? If you were to stop breathing, would you want us to put you on a breathing machine? Would you want us to do everything? Or this was the phrase that I heard every day in residency. And, and embarrassingly, this was what I said as a new attending. But to this day, I've never said those words ever again as a palliative care provider. Um, I'm back to my buffet again. Um, if a patient, if you present death, um, as a smattering of small failures of organ systems, um, then they get to choose. They feel like they get to choose a little bit of this and a little bit of that. They're, they're at a buffet again. They're not seeing the whole big picture. You're not allowing people to understand the big picture of why they would need CPR. And the big picture is the most important thing, right? You are so sick that you die. I know that most palliative care providers do talk about this with every patient, but the reality is that most providers don't. They talk about this with the patients that they're most worried about are going to die in the hospital, that hospitalization. So attempts at alleviating anxiety by saying, oh, I talk about this with all of my patients. In fact, the what patients hear is, this isn't really important to me, so don't take me very seriously. Um, so here's my spiel. Mrs. Smith, I wish that we didn't have to talk about this, but I'm worried about you. You are very sick. We're doing everything we can to treat your pneumonia. You're on antibiotics. We're doing the necessary tests. We're doing um, intravenous fluids to help you with your kidney disease. But my job as your doctor is to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. I hope that our treatments will help you feel better, but I'm worried um, that you're so sick that you may die despite our attempts to get you better. Have you thought about what your wishes would be in terms of attempting resuscitation if you were to die during this hospitalization? Then I stopped talking. I just dropped a big bomb and I need to let it sit. It seems really harsh. I use the word die, mm -hmm. um, which doctors hate to use. But isn't that what's happening? CPR and intubation are needed to bring people back from death. That's, that's a great point. CPR is resuscitation. It means bringing somebody back to life or attempting to bring somebody back from life. And that language can be really hard for some providers to use. I've had occasions when I have had to really ask outright what a patient's thoughts on code status are. Again, I definitely prefer to get there organically um, in the context of discussing their values or their wishes. But sometimes if it hasn't come up and if the patient seems like he or she is open to the topic, I might say something like, you know, I have a few more questions to ask you and the answers to these questions would really help me to understand your wishes better. Have you ever thought about who might help you to make medical decisions um, in the event that you were unable to make those decisions for yourself? And assuming that they say yes, they have, I would say, so have you and your sister ever talked about what your wishes would be for your medical care in whatever scenario is appropriate to discuss with this particular patient? So um, for example, have you ever thought about what your decisions would be um, if you needed something like CPR to restart your heart if you were to die, if you were to need a breathing tube, um, if your respirations were to fail? I would probably use non-medical language when I, when I had this discussion. Um, I might ask them, have you ever filled out a MOLST form in the past? Um, you know, you would remember if you had because it's, it's a bright pink form. It's really hard to miss. So I find that if I take that more personal angle first, you know, have you thought about 
who your support people are and who would be able to speak for you. Have you spoken with that person about what your wishes are? Okay, great. Can you speak with me about what your wishes would be? Um, I find that then it's easier to ease into the questions about CPR and intubation specifically. Um, now, we in palliative care see seriously ill patients the vast majority of the time. Um, so I really do end up asking these questions about just about all of my patients if I can. Um, and that's, again, because I've definitely had situations in which the chart says that the patient is full code, but maybe if you look more closely, there is something in the chart indicating that they wouldn't want CPR, um, or if you actually ask them the questions, they're very clear they wouldn't want CPR. I would hate for us to do things to a patient that the patient doesn't want, and that's one of the ways that I try to frame it to the patient when I bring it up. Really great point. And another point about language, if you present attempts at resuscitation as do everything, then you're implying that the alternative, which is DNR, DNI, is doing nothing. Um, as we've said before, who would choose nothing? Um, it's not all or nothing, right? So patients will think that being DNR, DNI means doing nothing because of the way it's presented. The, I'm using air quotes. Do you want us to do everything to try to save you? Uh, yeah, yeah, please. Um, because I don't want you to do nothing. That's why I came to the hospital. I want you to do something. Um, the, that question on its own should never be spoken by a medical provider. I feel very strongly about that. That sounds like a pet peeve to me. And you're right. DNR means do not resuscitate. It doesn't mean do not treat. You can still get medical treatments, um, even if you're not accepting of, of attempts at CPR. Um, and I've, I've heard about people, you know, trying to paint CPR in a really negative light by saying things like, well, you know, we're going to break all of your ribs if we do CPR. Um, I've actually even heard about a provider going to a room and, you know, mime really aggressive chest compressions on the patient's bed right in front of the patient and family. You know, but I feel like if I'm really scared and if I'm really desperate and I feel like I want to live at all costs, then, well, broken ribs doesn't sound that bad. Look, if it means I get to see, go home and see my kids or my grandkids, go ahead, break all of my ribs. But we have to remember that broken ribs is not the worst of it. That's not all that's going to happen. We have to be honest um, about what the worst case scenario could be and what the likely scenario is about what that aftermath of CPR is, as we've talked about so many times. For many people, there are fates worse than death. Um, and so the language that we use to talk about this is so critical in people's understanding. And Rashmi, in our previous episode, part one of the MULS form, you mentioned that we would talk a little bit about those other sections um, of the MULS form that address intravenous fluids, antibiotics, hemodialysis, hospitalizations. Let's spend some time now to talk about those sections. So again, it seems like the default is to get all of those things, even though some of those things are, are things that people do need to specifically consent for. Um, some of those things just naturally follow a lot of the time if, if, if they're even remotely medically appropriate for you. And that's because for many of us, it does make sense to keep receiving those interventions. Sometimes those interventions can be not only life prolonging, but also some things that, that extend quality of life. But when somebody is nearing the end of life, something that seems really simple, like IV fluids, can at its worst be burdensome and uncomfortable. And even, if, even at its best can be something that's really serving as life support, something that is 
you know, artificially extending life or artificially prolonging death and then needs to be actively withdrawn or withheld in order to allow for a natural death. Yeah, sometimes um, it might come across as wanting, not wanting to treat a patient, right? Pulling the plug, no IV fluids, no antibiotics, you can't come back to the hospital anymore. Um, so what do we get then? It does feel like we get nothing. Um, should, we, should we be surprised if people think it feels like you're abandoning them um, and they're left to die slowly in the corner somewhere if they choose a comfort uh, care plan? Um, the way I explain it is that when there's no more disease-directed treatments and a person is nearing the end of life, we really have to be thoughtful about what we do to them and for them. Allowing a natural death inevitably means discontinuing the things that tie them to the hospital, peeling away the layers of artificial life support. Um, it becomes relevant when those interventions stop prolonging life and, as you said, are only prolonging the dying process. Your doctors are saying that there are no more treatments for your disease and they're worried you are nearing the end of life. Where and how do you want to spend that time you have left? And if they tell me I want to spend it at home, um, they're not going to say, I want to be hooked up to IV poles in the hospital. It means then we're going to have to place limits on those interventions that will bring them back to the hospital and tie them there. And that includes IV fluids and IV antibiotics. Mm -hmm. That's a really good way of explaining things in a way that doesn't make it seem like we don't want to take care of our patients or like we're abandoning our patients. What we want to do is give them interventions that will bring them as close as we can to the quality of life that they want. Um, and I want to take a little bit of a, of a sidestep here. I want to put on my hospice medical director hat um, for, for a couple of seconds. Um, I want to address a question that, that comes up sometimes um, when, when people are talking about signing on to hospice or when other providers are, are asking me about um, referring their patients to hospice. So believe it or not, there's actually no requirement that somebody must be DNR or DNI in order to elect a hospice plan of care. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? I mean, you think... If this person's on hospice, they're really close to the end of life, they're pursuing a comfort-focused plan, you don't have to be DNR, DNI to, to get that hospice benefit. But again, we come back to that aftermath of CPR and intubation and those interventions that tie people to the hospital and which are probably not particularly comfortable and are not particularly dignified. So for the vast majority of people who are on hospice, even though they're not required to be DNR-DNI, being DNR-DNI um, and avoiding all of the things that would come afterwards, that's simply what's most in line with, with their values. So with that all being said, let's take a little bit of time to review some of the important pearls that we've discussed in today's episode. So number one, um, we should always start by exploring a patient's values and then help translate those values into medical interventions, including attempts at CPR and intubation. We should talk about what interventions fit within the framework of people's values and what interventions will take them further away from those values. We should let the values guide the conversation naturally to code status. If it doesn't flow naturally, then you can bring it up, maybe in the context of something like do you have a surrogate decision maker? And does that person know what your wishes are around attempts at resuscitation? Um, so it's important, again, to find language in your own voice, find your own spiel that presents code status um, in the context of the bigger picture, not just as you know, a body part that needs a jump start. 
The second big point is that we should be tailoring our talk about code status to the patient's specific disease process. Because remember, the, the risks of death for somebody um, who has dysphagia and dementia are worse for somebody, are different than somebody who has COPD, are different from somebody who's had a car accident. And number three, remember that for some people, there are fates that are worse than death. And what people need to hear is not just whether they'll survive attempts at resuscitation. What they also need to know is what their life would look like if they survive attempts at resuscitation. Discussions about code status should also include information about the aftermath of CPR and intubation. Remember, it's not how it looks in the movies. This information is really essential for patients to understand how all of these interventions would fit in with their values and goals. And again, that's ultimately what should ultimately guide decision making. In fact, Rashmi, there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine that was published in 2002 that showed that for advanced illness patients, greater than 70%, 70% of patients would forego treatment if the treatment burden was low, but the probability of severe functional impairment or cognitive impairment was high. So mortality was not the major determinant in patient choice here. We are not only responsible for the acute outcomes of our patients, but also the long-term consequences of that same care. So put plainly, most people would rather die than live a dreadful, debilitated life devoid of dignity and awareness. And lastly, make sure that you ask permission of patients and family members um, and offer your professional opinion on the interventions that make most sense within the context of their disease and their values. Make a recommendation, and if it is for DNR, DNI, and no feeding tube or whatever else, explain why. That's a great summary uh, because we've talked a lot today, and so those are really important pearls for our listeners to take home with. Um, and now let's take some time to talk about our pet peeves, the things that drive us crazy when it comes to code status and most forms. Um, I think I've alluded to it already. The all or nothing code status talk drives me insane. Um, presenting full code as do everything and a DNR, DNI as do nothing feeds into patients' false feelings of abandonment and giving up. Um, if there is one thing I would love to stop hearing, it's, I'm using air quotes, do you want us to do everything to save you? Or um, because when providers are specifically talking about a MOLS form, the or dangling there implies that the alternative is doing nothing. Right. And for me, it's, it's when people take the time to have a really good goals of care conversation and they help the patient come to decisions on code status and, and maybe some of the other measures that we've talked about, and then they don't write it down or they don't complete the most form. As we've mentioned, that chart documentation is really essential, especially to capture the nuances. And the most form is really easy to spot and it's really easy to understand. It only takes a few minutes to fill it out. Remember, it can be a verbal consent. The patient doesn't need to sign the form. You don't have to have witnesses. Witnesses don't need to sign the form. You just need to have the discussion and you need to sign the form as a provider. So please, if you're having these discussions and if you're coming to some decisions, please fill out that bright pink paper. That wraps it up for today. Going forward, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us questions, comments, or topic suggestions by emailing medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. This podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Support Office with UR Medicine. 
We'd like to thank Dr. Kevin McCormick and Nancy Scott for spearheading the grant and for their commitment to palliative care education. Thanks to Levi Ganji for the beautiful music that we use in this podcast and a huge thanks to Genesee Valley Media for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. And thank you to you for taking this medical time out with us. We hope that you'll join us the next time when we'll talk about sharing bad news and prognostication. Have a great couple of weeks. Thank you.